Mike, oh, this is Derek Hockaday interviewing Michael Tunbridge, 31st of January, 2014. Uh, <laughs> yes. Mike, it's um, very kind of you to give an interview and uh, very grateful. Can I first ask you the title of the job you came down to in Oxford and what it all meant, really? Well, I came in 1994 and the official title from the university, whose appointment it was primarily, was Director of Postgraduate Medical Education and Training but uh, a shorthand would be a postgraduate dean, uh, of which I was one in all the health regions in England, and there were four in Scotland, and one in Wales, and one in Northern Ireland. And so my appointment was a little unusual. It was primarily university with honorary contract with the regional health authority, whereas most of the postgraduate deans in other regions were the other way around, health authority and honorary titles in the university. So how much of your time was spent really in Oxford and how much in the region outside Oxford? I certainly made, as soon as I arrived, although I knew many colleagues here. um, In fact, I'm just remembering that the day I arrived in the JR, somebody met me and I knew at the JR front door and said, you do realise, Michael, there are 300 personalities in uh, type A personalities in Oxford <laughs> and I said Tufts is now 301 <laughs> either way I, I made a purposeful visit around the whole of uh, the region in all the hospitals in the region which were the four counties of Bucks, Barks, Oxfordshire and Northamptonshire and also of course met all the specialty advisors in the different specialties mainly based in uh, in uh, Oxford but but also in hospitals. Uh, And so it it was an integral job and I I wouldn't be able to formally apportion my time, but I was very keen to support proper training programs in all specialties. The general practice side was very well looked after by John Hasler and his colleagues, and really I let him continue to run. He was the director of general practice training, but I had to cover all hospital specialties. And... uh, I had a background in diabetes and endocrinology, and so I knew and had met in all the hospitals I've worked, people with different specialties, and I think, as you would know, being a diabetologist yourself, that you get in diabetes, all the world, and his wife, of course, all the medical mm. specialists. So that was a good background for, for the purpose. And uh, I would say I would spend, in an ordinary week, at least one day in London, Department of Health, or postgraduate dean's meeting, and I would be at least one day a week in the region somewhere and in and out of all departments, uh, both across and in, in Oxford itself. You mentioned the physicians you knew, but how much of your time was involved with surgery, say? Oh, well, as much time as any. I, didn't, I was very particularly careful as a physician not to be purely biased by my background as a physician but rather got to know well and admired many of the colleagues in, in all the specialists. So I was responsible for training of about 1,500 postgraduate doctors across the region. And I was very keen to enhance the training programs. When I came to Oxford, I think I was a bit surprised to find it was a divided medical school, which is unusual in this country at that time, because there was a preclinical school which was completely sort of separate psychologically, if not physically, mm-hmm. but it was physically from the clinical school, and that's not true anymore, and it's well and truly integrated now, um, but it was a bit surprising. And there was also, I have to say, an attitude within Oxford, which a little bit uncomfortable, was to say, you know, we're Oxford, we're in, you know, we're the great Oxford, 
and anywhere beyond the city walls was was out beyond the pale a little bit. And I, there's a conceit in that which I don't like, didn't like, and I was determined not well to make sure that the people in the region who resented that would come to realise the strength of being in linked training programmes. And so this was the Kalman era. He was the chief medical officer, keen to get rid of the old senior registrar grade, much to the chagrin of the old school, but then create this unified specialist registrar grade. So that was an important element and enabled me to, to talk to the regions and make sure we had in every specialty a good programme which would let the specialist registrars rotate because most of them were going to end up in DGHs. So important they had some experience of that, not purely in the academic centre. On the other hand, I was keen to support academic medicine and this became the era when to create new posts, you, the government gave the postgraduate deans 50% of the salary and they had to find the other half from somewhere else. And at the, you know, early in my days, the university was going to get rid of clinical lecturers and create four clinical tutors with the money at the consultant grade. And I was alarmed by that and said, well, if you've got eight clinical lecturers across different specialties, um, uh, Suppose you take half those salaries to create your four consultant tutors, leave the other half, and I'll match it. So I kept the sort of, by integrating my approach academically as well as we kept those clinical lecturers, and I think they were important seed corn for future would be academic doctors. And I think also we had, well, 100 more or more research fellows around when the uh, integrated SBR jobs came along. I actually think 90% of them had done a clinical registrar job already, so they were eligible for an allocated number. But others had to compete in open competition for such training programmes as we had created. But then if they were in research, could take off the next day with that number, securing the noise that when they finished the research they could come back. So I tried very much with my background in both medicine uh, as an academic and as a clinician to make sure that both parties, NHS and the university, worked collaboratively. And I think we got a reasonably smooth transition. And the programmes became very popular nationally, even in the least popular specialties. So I think it sounds a bit boastful, I don't mean that. But we, we, we made that transfer relatively smoothly. You said you'd match the salaries, or half the salaries. Well, where was your budget? Was that university NHS. money? No, yeah. no. The only bit of the university money was my salary and the secretary. So how did you get hold of the NHS? From because the Department of Health, presumably. Yep, it's yeah. all... The, and the, this, in this era, the, that proportion of, of uh, the NHS budget of top slots for education was handed, from the point of view of the medical training, to the postgraduate deans. So there was about 50 million that I was responsible for. Yeah. But most of that, of course, was going in the salaries of the trainees. Um, actually, within the sort of, I had within that about 100,000, which was sort of, I could play with a bit more flexibly. And I, I used that in sort of quite some in innovative ways. And I was keen to support flexible training. That's another thing. But, I mean, that had, Oxford had a good name for it. What do you mean by that? Well, people who train part-time, mainly. Mostly women because of natural biological reasons, but not only women. And proportionately, we actually had the highest proportion. I forget what it was as high as 10% at any one time. But in most of the other regions, the, um, the way it was handled was that there was a cap for the amount of money that flexible trainees could have. One of the problems being, of course, that 
their timing of their choice of flexible training <laughs> was not always predetermined. And uh, I said I would not cap it. And if I had oh, were to be overspent and I was going to be sacked, I'd say, may I have a last word? And I would say, you're going to fire me because I've spent some overspent on training, flexible trainees, and particularly women, uh, and I think they wouldn't dare pull the trigger. Well, I fortunately didn't get shot. <laughs> was that the era of SIFT? I mean, did you get your hands on SIFT? SIFT, not directly. It was. It's an era when, where the SIFT money went and where where it should be were, were obscure, can I put it yeah, that yeah. way? <laughs> Very obscure. The, the teaching hospitals got this money and then it was part of their great budget. And so tagging it and identifying it, but it was mainly for undergraduate teaching or for preclinical, not preclinical, but clinical, sorry, teaching in the hospital side. It was for the clinical students teaching as well as undergrad, as preclinical students. And, but it sort of got lost in the pool of the budget, which is the way the NHS was like this. I didn't think it was for undergraduate teaching. I thought it was to compensate the hospital for the fact that they did undergraduate teaching. Yeah, well, okay. I mean, yes, that, that's that's true. But it was an allocation for the time so spent. I mean, it, it, however, for getting it, I, disentangling it from the rest of the budget was extremely difficult. But I wasn't responsible. I had a separate budget from that. It was not SIFT. Yeah. Now, uh, to revert to sort of modern jargon, line manager, did you in any sense have a line manager, either NHS or university? Um, I felt that sometimes that I was riding a troika, you know, but in the harnesses there was a, a racehorse and a donkey <laughs> and a cart horse, but I wouldn't say which was which. <laughs> I had to be answerable to the uh, chief executive of the Regional Health Authority, uh, Essentially, but to the um, to the NHS and through that to the Department of Health. Although in the Calvin era, Calvin essentially promoted the postgraduate deans collectively to be a, a cohort of his number two A's, if I put it that way. If the chief, if the permanent secretaries are one, mm -hmm. and the deputy chief medical officers are two, we, there was a bit of a there was a bit of resentment. Uh, amongst the senior civil servants, and there was a bit of a tension as to whether or not we were civil servants or we weren't. We weren't. I had to have a special contract because I was a university appointment with them. So with it, my contract was between the university and the secretary of state, and so they had to agree if I misbehaved. They both had to agree to sack me. Unfortunately, didn't come to that. Um, but that was my sort of line management on the NHS side. In the university side, it was nothing like as formal as that, and I felt. Well, at the time, you see, I thought the Regis professor was the head of the medical school, but it wasn't like that administratively. He was the senior research fellow, <laughs> if I put it that way. But of course, I, I respected and uh, talked to David Weatherall. Uh, although, of course, in subsequent structures, the head of division is not necessarily the Regis professor in medicine. No, not by now, no. No, well, and mm. it wasn't. Either yes. way. That, 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 so that my sort of line management that way, but essentially I had to answer through the regional. And then when appraisals and assessments came in, of course, I was to be, have a joint appraisal with uh, with uh, David Weatherall, the Regis, and the, the deputy from uh, the, what whatever region it was then, because we moved in ten years that I was, was first going. We had four NHS reorganisations. We went from a benign Oxford Regional Health Authority, which you would have known. When we then we became Anglia and Oxford when we met joined across the Banana Republic as it was called the yeah. Oxford name. We met at Milton Keynes halfway. That lasted about two years. 
and then it was all NHS was reorganised again, and we became um, South East London, that is South East England, sorry, yeah, which is yeah. uh, the, the sort of bottom corner outside London, and that took you from our patch north of patch was Kettering. Um, to the Isle of Wight, to Dunganess. <laughs> it was bizarre. It was a bar, yeah, bizarre structure because yeah. it didn't it didn't match any of the natural flows of railways, roads, or people. And then it reorganised again as get it right, forget Thames Valley. I think it became mm -hmm. in the same. The, the chief executive remained the same throughout these reorganisations. Although we only had to go to Paddington rather than. And I, I think of the time spent by the NHS on reorganising that. Uh, time and again, and the, the amount of effort and money spent wasted in my way in these reorganizations. Mm -hmm. and, and I just before I retired, I saw a fifth one coming, and I thought <laughs> I don't need to be in the middle of that when I go. And I so I actually stopped a year earlier than I needed to have done, yeah. but I'd done 10 years, and that was long enough. Sorry, no, no. Um, and your relationships with civil servants because I was interested that yeah. you spent. A day a week in London, you On say. average, yes. I mean, there no, were, I had other duties there. So what were you all talking about? Well, basically, I think in the Kalman era, and I, you know, he was CMO for well, 94 to about 98, then Liam Donaldson followed him. He, he Kalman was very keen on improving medical education and training mm -hmm. from his background as a surgeon, then as an oncologist, then as a postgraduate dean, and then as a chief medical officer. So he had a very good grasp, and I liked him. Uh, and and so in his era we would meet perhaps once a month with him to to discuss how to effect change in, in the medical education world. Uh, subsequently Liam Donaldson wasn't so emph emphatic about that uh, and I think that the role of the, the authority of the deans was gradually eroded or diminished whichever way you like to look at it to the extent that it, medical education at the postgraduate level didn't become so important. Uh, in the eyes of the NHS, they had a lot of other things to deal with. Mm -hmm. Who was really driving these reorganisations? I mean, where was the initiative coming from? Oh, I think government ultimately, you have to say, whatever, I'm not being part of it anyway. Government changed, I mean, in the last four years, as you know, I, I there's another reorganisation coming along, I'm not and get involved in the pros and cons of any of these things. I'm just concerned that the, the amount of time and effort put into it. And there was a time when, when the sort of philosophy was change, and I, I think you do have to change, and, but you have to know the direction in which you're going to change for purpose and not just to change for its own sake. Under Kalman and later, what would you say were the novelty improvements that came in and which you were probably involved in? Well, I was certainly involved in... in the unification of the registrar, senior registrar grade, which mm -hmm. was a very important integration. I was sympathetic to that, not all my colleagues were, because prior to that, the bottleneck for would-be uh, hospital appointments was not until you failed to get the senior registrar, because the senior registrar jobs were numbered in relation to the available consultant appointments. So you could get to 33, 34 in a specialty, having spent you know eight years training, and then be thrown on the scrap heap. And I thought that that decision shouldn't happen that late. Mm -hmm. If you're not going to make it, then really I was in favour of the sort of decision-making time being between SHO and Registrar. So unifying the Registrar grade was, yeah, that took three or four years smoothly, um, was important. And I think w the numbers are always difficult because the numbers never get right for them. There was a huge expansion of, of um, consultant jobs. There was a huge expansion also in certain specialties 
at the, at the, at the unified grade. Uh, so that was one thing. Uh, I think Calvin was keen to integrate the SHO as well as the registrar grade. That may have happened more subsequently after I retired. I was less keen on that because I think, partly from my own experience, many people differentiate and find their specialty later rather than early in their careers. And I was always amused because I used to meet tutees in the final year to ask if they knew what they were wanting to do. And two-thirds of them would say, yes, they knew what direction they wanted to go broadly, medical or surgical or general practice. And at the end of the house jobs, you ask them again, and two-thirds again knew where they were going, but they were different two-thirds from the <laughs> first group. <laughs> and so people do need time, and need time to, to experience other subjects. And so, because they were very much traditionally just medicine and surgery, so one of the things I helped to do was create newer house posts in some of the other specialties, including general practice and psychiatry, for example, so people could perhaps have three or four months modules in... This was in then those days of one year, what is now called Foundation Year One. Now they've spread it over two, but most Foundation Years One and Two now have about six uh, specialty subjects to get experience, including those other ones. So I, I was in the early stages of moving in that direction. Uh, and then I've lost track of my own thoughts, I think. <laughs> what was your further question? Well, the question really was, what were the novelty improvements? Ah, well, I think... The, so... The, that was the, the integration of the registrar grade, the creation of newer f uh, house officer jobs. Because as a university responsibility, I was responsible for all the Oxford graduates wherever they were working. I had to sign them off at the end of the houseman year. Well, even if they were working outside oh, yes. Oxford, right. And so I had to know where they were working and yeah. get reports from whoever was supervising them. Yes. And I had to then sign them off. Uh, so uh, changing the, the traditional format of the houseman year was I was involved in that, so that's a novel in that sense. Yeah, um, I'd mentioned flexible training. I think that it's important that we continue to do that well. I think also they weren't so much novel, but I think we got into the area of integrating the, the academic and the clinical training. I was very keen that the academics could con continue to get specialty training, but they weren't these new specialties. It's the new scientific developments essentially not necessarily what I'll call target organ specialties. If you think of a portcullis and the vertical lines are hearts, lungs, gut, and all the neurology, whatever you can say. But the new disciplines of genetics, mm -hmm. molecular biology is what I was trying to say, therapeutics, cut across all those. And people training in the academic world, were, you, could go, you could go to my specialty meetings and hear the same science as if we're here in the gastroenterology meetings or in the other... And, I was keen that these academic people should also get good clinical training in general medicine, for example, because by and large the emphasis is different on different specialties and the physicians are much more interested in the academic side than most of the other specialties. But essentially, so they, I, I created, a, 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 and it was unique at the time, the acute general medical training program for three years. So they could get a ticket as a completed trained specialist in general internal medicine whilst doing their science uh, and become available to the teams in the hospital and take part in the acute takes competently. What did you think of the influence of the membership exam in British medicine? See, Beeson always thought it was a mistake that a future academic researcher, medical, but 
basically doing laboratory work linked to a particular specialty, had to be competent at membership level across the board. He thought they should just be competent in their own specialty. Well, I think it is, I personally think it's a unique feature of British medicine. Uh, I suppose we're talking about physicians here, but, mm. because, but the other specialties, by and large, have moved in the direction of having, if you like, an entry exam as well as most of the others have an exit exam, but that's another <laughs> issue. But actually, and I got involved in European medicine as a representative of, of the UK uh, in the specialty of endocrinology, and, and they elected me president of it at one stage. And together by Irish colleagues, we argued in f favor of having this two-year general training after graduation, rather than going narrowly straight into a specialty, which is what the rest of the world largely does in mm. Europe, in America and Japan and places all I've visited, they go straight into the specialty. They become very competent in their trained specialties, not questioning that, but they don't have the breadth that we require of our trainees, be it medical or surgical. Uh, and that matters, ultimately. Uh, or, and I think it's, it's a weakness of our, and strength, uh, paradoxically. As we become more and more specialised, the people who can deal with the acute takes and see the patient as a whole I'm talking about mental as well as physical, beyond their own narrow specialty. A few, and that's really a weakness now because people aren't just systems. Uh, I'm really impressed with the huge advances in, in the field of all, all sorts of specialties. But still, in training terms, I, I value the strength, and I don't, therefore, not on the Beeson camp. But I do think it's important whenever it's appropriate that people can take time out to do their research and be and we supported that people going up to three years out of program also i think quite importantly people might want to go out of program for other valid reasons um whilst i was doing three people wanted to go out and set up it companies right and i said to them well you know we do let people go out for up to three years you've got to find yourself some money because we'll use the money to replace your with a locum so come back and talk to me in a year because a year you can go and then you're going to tell me at the end of the year whether you think it's viable to do a second year but the maximum's three well one after a year came back decided that he wasn't the second i think went into the commercial world the third is the founder of doctors uh, net right and i think all credit to him and it's a fantastic achievement which he did uh, whilst he, he took time out and they became so successful he, he, he also got a lot of other uh, talents and he continues to practice part-time but in essence that's a, a, probably the single most beneficial innovative tool of the whole of my decade and I'll give credit to him entirely for that. You earlier, I think, when we were chatting, you mentioned type A personalities in Oxford. <laughs> so when you were with this Anglia set up, with Oxford and Cambridge, <laughs> how did that work out? Oh, uh, well, I have friends on both camps, and I'm a Cambridge graduate originally, <laughs> so I'm accepted. But uh, I, there wasn't really uh, any conflict. <laughs> but, uh, but Anglia and Oxford didn't work out. They respected each other, both halves of this strange banana republic. Uh, and we got on with that, typically Oxford, I suppose, and Oxford got on with their own things. There wasn't much collaboration in a practical sense. There wasn't a merger. Um, each each rival institution carried on. Because <laughs> Cambridge were developing clinical school, but I mean they'd already done it, but they were still developing it. Yes. And using places like Ipswich, Colchester for training more than Oxford Region or not? Well, I don't. This is personal. Yeah. Twenty uh, in the mid early seventies, I went for a job at Cambridge. 
as a consultant uh, really too soon in my career and I wasn't uh, appointed. But I really blew it because I said to Cambridge people who were in, in the sort of preliminary visit, what are you doing about integrating clinical training with all the other hospitals around the East Anglia? And their attitude was, we're a scientific institution, world-renowned, we're not going to talk about that. And they, they, there were blinkers about yes. that. And, and of course, you now well an East Anglia Medical School based in Norwich. Um, now... It wasn't as rigid as that, but Oxford had an element of that, yeah. which was quite strong. And I think they were also, there was resentment from outside, but more particularly, Oxford's a small city. It's 150,000. Okay, you've got some splendid centres and so on, but you've got oh, now 150 students. It went up from 100 to 150 whilst I was post dean, and I was supportive of that. We're still the smaller school in, in the UK. But we needed to drain a much bigger catchment area for the purpose of training students. And so I was keen, again, that, uh, well, the students did go out to some of the hospitals. But when it came to house jobs, I mean, Northampton was excellent um, and uh, very popular. Unfortunately, Northamptonshire was removed from our geographic patch. Of, subsequently, that's nothing to do with us. Um, but it goes back to my philosophy of trying to make sure that the good teachers in the DGHs had students, uh, postgraduate students, to train as well as... And so I did deliberately try and break down those walls so that there wasn't a barrier uh, between us and them in the sense that, that the academic centre of excellence, which Oxford is, um, was also um, part of an integrated region. There's sort of rumour, for somebody like me, not knowing what was going on, was that Northampton was an excellent place, progressive, and Reading was a bit stuck in the mud, or looking <laughs> to London. <laughs> well, I think historically that is true. At one stage, Mary's in London had links with mm -hmm. Reading. And when I was a, a young doc, Reading had a very good name for training people. Right. But interesting enough, I mean, one, I was very fortunate in my leadership. We were talking about an expansionist era in terms of numbers of training. Yeah. And I was in trying to create training programs, would go to ECDH and say, you know, I'd like to put a new post in here in this specialty as part of this programme. And one or two of the centres in Reading said we don't want that, which was a bit of a disappointment, I have to say. So I didn't win all my kids. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned that there was a huge expansion in the consultant grade while you were in office. Was that a good thing? And what was driving it? Um, the short answer is, I think we'd, we'd, we'd had a very, we have had a very pyramidal structure that people expected more consultant provided service, not just consultant led. So there's a move to do that. The specialties all expanded, you know, the single, they weren't single-handed practitioners anymore in their specialty or whatever, just like in general practice, they grew. Uh, that it was recognised, of course, that the NHS would not have survived without at least one third of its staff who would come from the Commonwealth countries, largely. And we weren't producing enough doctors of our own. So the medical school numbers expanded from about 4,000 to about 7,000 over that decade. I'm talking about mid-90s to 2000. And that has a, a momentum which goes through to the higher training grades. And the diversification I referred to at, a, at the interval between SHO and uh, registrar. So I think all sorts of pressures. Uh, 
And now we do produce mainly our own graduates. There's concern about unemployment. But of course it's competition. We still have free competition. We still believe as doctors that we can choose to go wherever we like, to do whatever specialty we like. We do not need 10,000 cardiac surgeons. <laughs> we need a few good ones. <laughs> I mean, in a sense, competition, that introduces Europe, because you're on this yes. committee in Europe. Yeah. And what did you feel your aim was on that committee? Well, there's, a, there's a, an organisation which uh, is for all the member states of the EU, and every, in the, in the health division, there's, there's, um, there's one for every subject. And so this happened to be the endocrinology, which had covered diabetes as well. And the, the, the aim was essentially to, it was to do with the 1976-77 Act of the Freedom of Movement. It's nothing to do with doctors as such. But, you know, if you're part of the European Union, you have the right to go and practice your work in any of the European countries. And so it was to do with the standardisation or recognition of qualifications originally. Yeah. And of course the different traditions of training in different European countries are different, but the, I mean, I think, I'm trying to remember who was the, the, um, the commissioner at the time, became a head of an Oxford college, his name had just gone out of my head. He had heard the doctors wrangling about this for years, and he said, right, as of the sort of date in January, you're all gonna recognize your final, qual your final qualifications, period. And that became European law. Yes. Now, there is a difference in that ground. We talked about it earlier, about how the benefits of having a broader training to start with. Uh, so that was the background against which we similarly, in the different specialties, tried to make sure that the specialist qualifications required to be recognised, say, in any quarters, were recognised by other European countries professionally. And we got a remarkable degree of agreement about that, but the real problem is at the sort of mere level we are in the European bureaucracy, is getting any influence with the commissioning level is political. Mm. And that is another matter altogether. <laughs> <laughs> but the politics were driven by integration. Yeah, to do with, yes, to do with the freedom of movement of, of people, Yes, originally. But it, professionally, it became... And it was a very uh, agreeable group of yeah. colleagues. <laughs> uh, and we got remarkable agreement within you know, the specialty group. And then with the representatives, chairs of the also made. So within the broad division of the medical specialties, there amazing unanimity in, in the how people should be trained up to the level of becoming independent practitioners. <laughs> different in different countries, but not, not in principle. Apart from the fact we touched on earlier that we believe in a bit of general training first. To come back to Oxford, what were your relationships, how did you integrate with the regional hospital board? Well, it, was, it wasn't quite the board that you remember. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was the board, I think, there was still a, an integrated board. We used to meet on Saturday mornings with the university and some of the representatives. That, that was, I mean, the representatives were, were both the region and the university there. But that was actually abolished when, when the Oxford Regional Health Society disappeared. And so um, I didn't have any dealings with that a board as such after that. Through mm -hmm. the, to the, to the chain of... Um, so of, who would you be dealing with then? Well, I, I mentioned earlier, I think I would be dealing with... Uh, I remember it was Pat Troop was, the, was uh, in, the, in the Anglia and Oxford region. She was the uh, public health doctor there. And then the daughter of Stocking, occasionally when she... So, and then I, I always felt if, I mean, we, we uncovered one or two things which go on anywhere, but it was really quite a bit of a shock to me. I mean, it's an interesting 
to deal with uh, the profession as a whole. Put it this way. I remember one of my professor colleagues um, coming to see me and, and short circuiting, being highly cerebral from being a And I, I looked at him in surprise, amazement, and I said, "You know, I don't know who gives me the bigger headache." the bottom 1% of our profession or the top 1%. <laughs> and he stopped and we had a laugh and we, you know, cut it calmed yes. down and we could deal with it. But, but I did come across the bottom 1% of our profession. Now, in the course of my 20 years in Newcastle, one time when I was before, I worked in a good hospital, 200 consultants probably, with a really good ethos, same sort of good ethos as we have in Oxford. But as a, even as chairman, I only came across one or two in, the, in, in my... 200 staff over 20, over 15 years and something. You know, one with a mental health problem and the other with an alcohol problem. So I wasn't very particularly experienced at the difficult side of our profession. But I have to say, you know, as a postgraduate dean and dealing with trainees more than the consultants, um, every specialty has got its bottom one percent. And my cumulative experience over a decade is more than I would have wished to have acquired. <laughs> um, and that's including you know, theft and uh, dishonesty and uh, incompetence. And so yeah, no one's immune to that. And we're not very good at disciplining ourselves as a profession. Um, and so often things, when, when they do come to light, there's a chain of things which have been noticed but not acted upon. And so yeah, interfering at the right moment before damage is done to patients. I don't think the profession would be very good at that. Who is responsible for that? I mean, were you in any sense, or was it the individual hospital should be doing ah, it? Well, it's the employer, uh, technically, um, but things would come to light, like falsification of CVs. And we would, you know, because you'd get 300 applicants for, you know, you can't go through all the details, but it, some, something might bring it to light, in which case it would be reported to the employing hospital, who would have a proper inquiry, following which, if it was confirmed, they would person would be dismissed and then reported to the General Medical Council. So that was due process. We didn't have too many of those but we had some. And what were your relationships with your college? How did you in enjoy that? Which college? The College Wadham. of Oxford. No, sorry, oh, Wadham. Wadham. Wadham, where I, I felt it's really been a privilege to be a fellow at Wadham. And okay, I would make every effort to go to the two or three governing bodies a term uh, and I would go and take a guest, distinguished medical guest usually, uh, to the guest nights twice a term. When you say you made every effort, did you get there? Oh, I got to governing bodies, yes, conscientiously. Right. right. Uh, and if, there were, two, if mm. there were two guest night dinners a term and uh, two partners night with my wife, would I go with mm. and I brought a whole series over the decade of very distinguished medical guests, not only medical, I do have friends mm. <laughs> beyond that. And, and, and what was the privilege? Well, the privilege, of course, is after... After the whole week, which I enjoyed the stimulus and the challenge of my colleagues, senior or junior, you, you know, to go to college on a Friday night and sit with people who had nothing to do with medicine was a refreshing change. <laughs> and I was only, you know, being one of it's a super college that's really unstuffy and friendly and welcoming right from day one. So I felt a little privilege. You also feel a bit more part of the university because in the medical world, as you know, up the hill, uh, most of your colleagues in the university don't understand what you're doing. <laughs> I would never be able to go. F to the college for lunch because I was too busy somewhere around the region also. Yeah. It, was a, it was a privilege and oh. I, they kind of made me a meritorious fellow when I retired which is very nice. <laughs> On the various inspections businesses, yeah. now the, the colleges coming down to inspect yeah. jobs, how did you integrate with that? Well I, 
I made sure that one of the representatives, a, a representative of the deanery, accompanied every college visit and every specialty. It wouldn't always be me personally, but it was always done. At the, at, they came to inspect uh, the registrar level jobs rather than the junior ones, but um, and the husbands were my responsibility. I mean, one of the things I did when I first came was to go to every hospital to look at the house jobs. And in the interregnum for between the death of my predecessor a year earlier, and um, Malcolm Goff was the acting the and he went with John Lennon to, I don't mind naming the hospital, the one near, uh, near Ascot. And they put in a pretty damning report. It said things had to change. So I had the new boy come in autumn of 94, and find that nothing's been done. So I said to them, well, I came back in three months, and these changes which you've been recommending have to be affected, or I'll remove the house jobs. Well, they didn't make a change, so I removed the house job. Mm-hmm. And not for the whilst the people in company. No, no, but no, I said, no, there's no, no further house. These jobs are not household office training jobs. If you could, if they only see the consultant when they go, when they go to the theatre once a week to see mm-hmm. them. And so you need you know, staff grade jobs, people to do the jobs. And I took the purse away, but then put them into Wexham, which hadn't got enough house officers to do a proper rotor. So the actual transfer to to that collective trust didn't damage them, but it took them out of places where there was no training. Yeah. Well, that made people head up and take notice. <laughs> now, take the Churchill. Yeah. Um, they didn't feed the doctors, the young doctors, when they were on duty in the middle of the night. And was that anything to do with you, or was that <laughs> completely different? Oh, no. I, well, uh, when I first came, um, I found that... Um, I, the, the postgraduate dean had been the vice chair of the junior doctors, um, BMA committee for the junior doctors' concerns. And cle- cleverly, Muir Gray <laughs> left the committee, leaving me to be chair. <laughs> <laughs> and the BMA junior doctor was Evan Harris. Right. And who later, as you know. Yeah. And, and, and he, he had his heart in the right place, and he certainly was a terrier in terms of trying to get conditions right for doctors around the region, mm-hmm. got under the skin of most of my senior colleagues, and I spent a lot of time pouring oil on troubled waters. But there was a valid issue, and it was not unique to this particular hospital or even to that grade. And hospitals, I, I've talked to several managers about this. I said, you know, if you were in the army and you sent your troops out and didn't provide them with food, they'd shoot you in the back. Yeah. And in military terms, I parallel, I said, you know, you provide, you're providing facilities for lunch, breakfast, lunch, and tea, if you like, or early supper, for those who are working between eight and eight, and then you expect the rest to work 12 hours overnight without providing anything. And so we did try and battle on behalf of them. And, and that was one of the conditions of recognising house jobs. Good. Uh, to yes. make sure that there was some provision. Now, it might only have been that there was a... Because they wouldn't keep a staff open on a restaurant, but there was had to be some facilities in the junior doctor's mess for cooking and for providing the basic ingredients so it was a t- it was a condition of getting a job house job recognized by the hospital approved for the hospital Good. as best we could it wasn't adequate um but that was how it, we did it did come within my province it caused more headaches than probably the most of the mm. thing mm. <laughs> a difficult question because things are changing with time yeah. but how would you actually compare newcastle and oxford what was good what was bad well firstly um professionally i mean as a physician i found no difference that might seem strange to people, but, mm-hmm. you know, it wasn't because the, the, in both places there's a good relationship between academic and, and uh, NHS jobs. There's a conscientiousness which I'll, you know, which I, I, is part of my own upbringing and most others. Um, 
and the, and the patient came first, and that ethos, I'm sad to say, you know, from what one reads in the public domain, is being lost in some places, not here, but that we're not, you know, we're not immune from criticism yeah. uh, in that respect. And I think there is there's a change of emphasis, which I think is a, is to the detriment. But that is to do with caring for people, and it's as much a nursing as a medical mm -hmm. problem. And I. You know, the profession opposed the abolition of the old state enrolled nurses because they were the salt of the earth, often mature women who had let their families grow up and had a proper two-year training and they were by and large pretty loyal and hard-working and mm. properly trained. And, and I understood the, the, the nursing profession wishing to become a graduate institution and we needed good talented nurses and there's some real talent amongst them. On the other hand, they made a big mistake in, in getting rid of that grey, which was the basic backbone of good nursing. And I, um, so I, I, I don't know if I've answered your question. Well, no, you have. Oh, that was part of the, the professionally. In terms of uh, teaching, Newcastle was, was in the forefront of really integrated teaching. Mm -hmm. uh, both of clinical and preclinical, which at Oxford was a long way behind that. Uh, I'm not saying it's one no, better no, than the other. Right. There's an ethos. I mean, probably only 20% of the... And I'm now talking about 20 years ago. 10 or 20% would do integrated natural medical sciences in, in Newcastle. Funding was always a bit difficult. Whereas here, of course, you've got a three-year proper science training and then three years clinical. And there's horses for courses. So if you like, there's, a, there's more emphasis on the academic side, I think, in Oxford, and that has a good reputation. And I had, when I was a physician in Newcastle, Oxford graduates come and do house jobs with me because the Oxford graduates came and enjoyed Newcastle, I think. Um, so the ethos was the same. There was a commitment to teaching, which is, you know, I think, a bit patchy in Oxford, I have to say, because the pressures on research, which is so paramount in people being evaluated, um, and that was generally true of of all academic institutions, the pressure research is such that the, 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 because the teaching doesn't carry the funding with it in the way that research does, there's a real danger of the teaching being devalued and and I think that's where I personally felt I could make some contribution uh, to making sure that teaching standards were, were maintained but also valued. Uh, and we, d I did sit. I mean, I arranged every year a meeting with all the regional advisors and, and all the tutors in the hospital. Most of them hadn't. When I started this, when I have a did, I hosted a dinner at one for them all. So across the region, these people got together. They'd never met each other, most of them. And so I funded that. Oh, that's yeah. good. Yeah. And and that was appreciated, I think, because they got to know each other. Mm. I also had brought a, a very distinguished lecturer. I brought the chief medical officer, both of them, <laughs> to come and talk to them. And so we had a very series of distinguished. Not just hot college presidents, but more sort of senior people still. <laughs> now you weren't responsible for general practitioners, or were you? Oh, I was. I was no, overall, yes, overall, yes. I was responsible for training, including dentistry. Although we <laughs> don't have a dental, <laughs> we had a. So I had there was a director of general practice training. I mentioned John Hasler, followed yes. by John Toby, followed by Neil Johnson, who went on to become a dean and then subsequent professor of general practice in Warwick, followed by Derek Gallan, who also went on to become. Dean, and then is now the postgraduate dean in Wales. So they're a very able group, mm -hmm. and they had a very organised training. Much they were ahead of the rest mm -hmm. of the specialties, and so I was content to let them.
carry on with a nudge here and there um, and was involved in the appointments but so I was a, the um, overall chiefly responsible so thing went, something went wrong somewhere whatever it was general practice or whatever dentistry interesting because we have no dental school and therefore the region is short of dentists because we don't train them locally and And, and he, we had a good, good relationship in terms of developing the postgraduate training for dentists. And I, he had his own group of people, but we were very supportive of that. Now, you were always doing some clinical work, I think. I did. I, I said when I came, mm -hmm. I couldn't go on doing acute medicine because I couldn't continue a day, on a daily, yeah. daily basis. But I said I would like to do a diabetic clinic and an endocrine clinic. And I volunteered my services, and since I came for free, I was welcomed by my <laughs> colleagues because <laughs> I didn't ask for the salary for them. So I did the old, I did the diabetic clinic, clinic throughout my career. I had to reduce to one of them a week. And then when I stopped, I sort of went on doing both clinics for 18 months after I retired from my full-time job until I hit 65 and stopped altogether. Would you say there was any difference, contrast, between the general practitioners in Newcastle and Oxford? I can't answer that. There were good general practitioners in both, uh, and there was a good postgraduate setup in Ox in Newcastle. And of course, Donald Irwin, who was a GP, became president of the GMC. Uh, John Walton had been president of the GMC, um, and indeed, of my contemporaries, having left Newcastle, I think six of them became presidents of their respective colleges. So Newcastle had a fantastically uh, good era. Uh, yeah, and I could name them all, uh, and, and it was a privilege to be amongst them. On the other hand, it was quite interesting because there's quite a tradition of, of movement of Newcastle staff to Oxford um, over the years. And I can mention, I mentioned John Walton, who is known, John Grimley Evans, no, Sir John Grimley Evans, Professor of Gerontology, um, Joe Selcon came, microbiologist. Um, mm -hmm. and, the first name just come out of my head, but Dr. Bird was sadly died with brain tumour. He was immunology. Mm -hmm. um, Adrian Harris, oncology. Yes. Right. And Michael Tunbridge, postgraduate dean. They all came from Newcastle General Hospital. Because right. Adrian trained in Liverpool, but yes. he was working in he, Newcastle. We appointed him, yes. I was on the appointments committee, or yeah. I was involved in some other committee, perhaps the right one. When Adrian was appointed professor in college in Newcastle at the age of 31, I think the youngest mm. professor, yeah. and we knew we wouldn't be able to keep him very long. <laughs> um, but he came here before I, I forget the batting order. Anyway, but the interesting thing all those people worked at Newcastle General Hospital. The, in Newcastle, there were three hospitals, and Royal Victoria was the traditional teaching hospital. And the General Hospital, despite its name, had almost the specialist units because the, it did, in fact, Robotham, who'd come to me, I think, set up the neurosurgery there. There was radiotherapy, neurology. MRC unit, and, but it was a general hospital, yeah. and served the poor end of Newcastle. Mm. Uh, so that's you were asking comparing Newcastle and Oxford. So when the Freeman developed, of course, the specialist units went there. So there was there was a similarity in sort of although Newcastle is a bigger city, in the in the sort of organisation of healthcare in Newcastle and here. And of course, the same arguments, everybody defending, the profession spends an awful lot of time defending the status quo instead of recognising changes 
going to come you might be better spent time might be better spent adapting to the new requirements and it's quite likely the decision had to be made to close the Radcliffe Infirmary but after many years of resistance from understandably people who have the loyalty there and the traditions and the fantastic history and the same is true of Newcastle what would be happening in Newcastle say up in Wooler would there yeah, be yeah well in Wooler Northumberland's the most beautiful county yes. Wooler of course is about as remote as you can <laughs> get you're not far from the border and it's a lovely place to go walk in the summer but in terms of healthcare they would have primary primary care there there's a, a I mean there was a hospital in Hexham which is comparable to say there's a hospital in Banbury which is now, of course, an integrated part of the Oxford setup, mm-hmm. and as you know, Van res- resisted being demolished over 25, 40 years, <laughs> and it's one of the problems with a town that's that size, 25, 30,000, or whatever it was, now bigger, probably, is how, what is the option way of providing healthcare in place, because you can't do all singing, all dancing in there and in Oxford, so the present arrangement, I'm not sure how well it's working now, is uh, n- no, you have to integrate and what you can provide centrally and what and you can't put everything in the center everything because it gets swamped and there is a real problem i think of integrating health services and social services because if you took the patient journey you know from event at home to a and e to delays not finding a bed because Granny's still there and hasn't got a home to go to, and all the rest. It, it's somebody's got to take the an overall view, and it's no good just complaining about one section of this because it's all together part of mm. the same problem. I'm getting a bit off track. I think. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, now you said you got out here early, early by age, um, partly because there was another reorganisation coming. So how's the job changed for your successor? Ah, well, I can't answer that because I've stayed out of his way and, right. uh, in one sense, and I've deliberately kept out. Yeah, but nominally, I, I mean, the job has changed. I suspect in in terms of the NHS side, you need to talk to him. In the changing structures of the NHS, I think he is like me. who's sometimes glad to know that he had a university appointment because he wouldn't didn't have to reapply for his own job. <laughs> <laughs> um, so be, he's gone through two or three further organisations and the structure by which the postgraduate deans answered to the centre where, when we started with this one-to-one almost relationship with the chief medical officer it's way, way I think there are, there are layers mm-hmm. and I think that the relationship now is with le- level five. Oh dear no, that's think, a real sh- well I think it's a real change yeah. I think that's one change the other and it's perfectly is that Health provision of healthcare is true of of, of um, universities, not just of the NHS. It's no longer just medicine. You've got medicine, nursing, and all the other health professions. Mm-hmm. And you'll find in medicals in universities now, there's there might be a dean of medicine, but he's under a, a director of uh, of health serv uh, not health service, of health whatever you call it, um, all the health specialties, mm-hmm. and and that's the way of the world. Um, mm-hmm. And it's happened within our own specialty of diabetes. Look at diabetes, you, you know, UK compared with the British Diabetic Association, which was purely the docs. Diabetes UK now embraces all the professions, about a thousand nurses probably. It's the way things have moved. 
On the other hand, in terms of postgraduate medical education, instead of answering to the chief medical officer, you're answering to the somebody in the whatever region it's called now. It's got another name. Sorry. Mm. Well, we're part of. What are we? Southeast. The South. We're half linked. Half in Wessex. <laughs> um, so that chain's different. Yeah, that. And locally, I don't know. There's a new acronym which I've not even learned, but I know that there is, which means that my successor has to answer to somebody in the new uh, region who is deemed to be responsible for education across mm. all the health fields. Right. And then I don't know that he how what how he relates to the Department of Health. So he would have something to do with Oxford Brooks. Did you ever have anything to do with them? Uh, not directly, because of course the training of most of the non-medical yeah. people had done the Brooks, and yeah. I've have uh, had you know, meetings with people in Brooks, and, mm -hmm. and my wife's invigilated for them for their handicapped students and so on, and uh, and I certainly know the, the setup there. But as in my area, we were dealing with medicine mm -hmm. and not the other specialties. I don't know how far my successor has links with books or not. Mike, that's been extremely interesting. Now, what would you like to say that I haven't asked you about? Oh, I see. Well, I think you've asked me a lot. Ah, I was sitting, because of this interview, I was sitting thinking, well, you know, how much did I achieve? Quite <laughs> <laughs> a lot by the sound of it. <laughs> well, I don't know it's for others to say. I think uh, I enjoyed the job. Um, I did enjoy the stimulus and challenge of my colleagues. Um, I hope that what they might say to me, well, I was fair, uh, and firm, but fair, and uh, I can give you one or two examples, but I don't think I should. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I was asking, to the point you came, so what was the upside and what was the downside? Well, the upside was, was really being in an environment which was stimulating and challenging and, uh, and hopefully constructive. Uh, the downside, I think, was dealing with the bottom 1% of our profession. Mm -hmm. uh, that caused me a few sleepless nights. And the frustration of, uh, actually, my relationship with the Department of Health, uh, uh, because I wasn't afraid to say what I thought, never have been, probably not tactful, a bit too blunt, that's why Yorkshire coming out. Um, and f come back from London feeling I'd, I'd, a bit like the boy who said the emperor's got no clothes when I felt the centre were going in the wrong direction and said so, but the civil service didn't like to pass that on to their masters. Yeah. So I, I got a, a bit of frustration. No, I didn't, yeah, there were, there were other positive things. I did help set up a, an elective scheme for people to take three months for the services because mm. they're short of docs. And mm. I, I argued... So territorial. No, 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 no. This is people doing NHS training who might be interested. I thought they, they could learn a lot. Mm -hmm. The military were keen to recruit. I didn't have any problems with that. But also, I said, and I, I used my argument with the flexible trainees being, uh, or women being allowed to take three months out of their training program as, because of biological reasons or whatever, without detriment to the training. So I said, if women make me, mm -hmm. well, women, the women's get, but could do that. So anybody could take three months mm -hmm. out for valid reasons without detriment to the training. So okay. I then set up a scheme with the blessing and encouragement of the military so that anybody who wanted to do spend three months with Army, Navy or Air Force with approval set up an agreement um, they would be paid by the service so we had some money to pay for a locum but more importantly I persuaded the powers that be to recognise that this was possible and so it was approved 
and I think that was something I yeah. used to have achieved. But I don't think many people took it up because the people who were really interested in the service were already in the reserves. <laughs> but it was quite fun. I think it led to some very interesting trips that I made, including one to Bosnia for a weekend. Gosh, right. Uh, what was the legacy of John Potter and Ralph Johnson? Oh, well, John was still around when I came, much loved, f- from a much earlier era, in the days when somebody or other kindly used to say that he used to spend his time sitting in the Tower of the Winds writing letters to the Times. <laughs> but he was a benevolent, humorous, kind person, and I can't judge what he'd done, but he was he was much loved. And um, and I was privileged to know him and his lovely wife, who actually was still alive in her mid-90s. And Ralph Johnson came after him, and I can't judge what impact he made because when I came, um, he'd been dead for a year, a uh, shocking and tragic death. And so I, I don't know what changes he'd made. Can I leave it at that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anything else you'd like to say, Mike? <laughs> well, I've enjoyed our conversation. <laughs> I've probably talked too much. No, no, you're not uh, at all. <laughs> and I think... No, I, I don't want to generalise. I think um, it's for others to say wh- how my era went. But I, I, I wasn't frightened to, to take tough decisions and to lead. And by and large, I think one or two colleagues kindly said afterwards, they did feel I was on their side. I didn't say I wasn't on nobody's side, but, but I was, I think, able to carry colleagues with me. There was quite a lot of resentment to the changes that came about. And I, I'm pleased that, that I was able to do that and remain friends with most of my colleagues across all the specialties. Mike, thank you very much. It was a lovely <laughs> interview. I really enjoyed it. <laughs>